0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: This is iUniverse Radio. My name is Brian Houston. Today we are talking about a book entitled Hoganville County, a novel. It is written by Norma Campbell Price. And on the phone right now from her home in Kansas is Miss Norma Campbell Price. How are you doing, Miss Price?
2: Oh, just fine. Kind
1: of damp today. Yeah, we've got a little bit of a storm going here in Texas as well, but uh, we're glad that we're able to talk and it's not going to affect our phone call any. Uh, first of all, I want you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, my understanding is that you were you grew up in the Depression or in the tail end of the Depression. Tell me a little bit about your, your
0: background. Well,
2: I came in in October of 29. I came in with the stock market crash. And I grew up during the 1930s on the north central Kansas farm and attended country school for eight years and then high school and marriage and kids and college and all of that kind of stuff. And I've always been interested in Western literature. In fact, I read everything I, which I could get my hands on. Uh, even the hired men we used to hire a man to do some of the work, and they used to read these uh, Western novels mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. the 30s. I don't know if you're familiar with those things. but I am. And my mother was a very good Baptist lady, and she frowned on that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm sure she never read one of them, because they were pretty innocent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Moms were always a little careful back in those days.
2: Well, it was a different world.
1: It was, no question about it. a very
2: different world.
1: Well, it, it sounded to, you know, I mean, it was a simpler time, but it seemed to be a much harder time uh, than anything that we've experienced uh, to date. Uh, you probably could speak better to that than I can, but uh, I, that would be my assessment of it.
2: Well, the, the terrible part about it, of course, was the weather and the dirt and the, the heat. I, of course, the 1930s, those were my formative years, and I remember the heat so much, it was, we lived on a farm, we didn't have electricity, mm-hmm. so we didn't have a fan, we had plenty of well water, it was groundwater, that, uh, and that was for the livestock, and we had plenty of water to drink, and so on and so forth, but it, it was just hot.
1: Sure. I can't and even. Dirt, I can't imagine having to live in that situation now with no air conditioning as soft as we've gotten with AC. I can't imagine what it was like having to live without uh, air conditioning or even a fan back in those days.
2: Well, it was uncomfortable.
1: I bet. <laughs> but we
2: were healthy. Sure. And we had we had plenty to eat. Some people did not mm-hmm. during the depression. Some people went hungry.
1: Oh, I, I'm I'm sure that's true. There were many many cases of it. Well, let's lead to the book. Your book is called Hoganville County, a novel, and a lot of it has to do with some of the experiences that you lived through uh, during the Depression. Is that right?
2: Well, that is true, and uh, you know, I call writing fiction a peculiar form of lunacy. (laughs) I I don't know what your definition of it is, but you're trying to recreate a world, you know, and it's. This is not so much history as it is in an interpretation of the historical era. And so it was, it was safe in some ways. We, there was not much crime. Um, the worst of all, and I've mentioned this in this preface uh, uh, to this book, was the lowest of the low was the chicken thief. Chicken thieves were uh, chickens as I said had value because you could eat the chickens and they laid eggs and you could eat the eggs and they perpetuated themselves so uh, and the cream check dad always milked cows and we always had milk and cream and mom churned butter Mm -hmm. and baked bread we lived on a farm so we ate well That, as I say many people did not but and eggs, and those, that check was important to the farm family.
1: Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, tell me about the, uh, the plot of your book.
2: Well, the plot of the book uh, traces the lives of these people in Hoganville. And part of the problem in those days was, uh, and it's a perennial problem, it seems like, is addiction. We had uh, alcohol... In Kansas, was legal up to 1948. Mm-hmm. Uh, prohibition ended in, uh, I think, it was 30, 32, something like that. But it was uh, illegal in Kansas till 48. And uh, but you could always buy alcohol. It was always available. There were bootleggers all over. In fact, they used to run into each other, practically. <laughs> some people, they tried to make their living that way.
1: I'm sure. Selling,
2: selling bootleg uh, alcohol. I and mean, that caused crime, you know. And so a part of the book traces the addiction of one of the characters, Ed, sadly, and his wife, who takes in washings and ironings in order to survive and bring some cash into the household. And so this is a book about alcohol addiction and also nicotine. Everybody smoked during that era. Right. All the men did, except maybe some of the clergy or some of the religious men, you know, of men who attended church didn't, perhaps. Some of them did, but, mm-hmm. but in my family, all the men did. My dad smoked a pipe, my grandfather smoked a pipe, and they smoked cigarettes. And my husband started smoking when he was about thirteen or fourteen. He developed emphysema. Sure. And it's it's uh, an interesting thing today because nicotine is uh, is out now. The the science is in, mm-hmm. but and the maro- push for marijuana is out there. So uh, and the question, of course, is is marijuana going to be. Uh, a healthy substance or is it going to be an un- unhealthy one right we don't know the science is out there but but that's part of the novel is is this and and um, it's the lives of these people who are intersect in a, a small community the lives of people in a small town and a small rural community community they all intersect with each other and part of the thing with my family was the land. The family owned the farms, but they were mortgaged. They mm-hmm. made some bad business deals, and my dad went around with a long face because what would he do if he lost the land? How could he support a wife and a bunch of kids with farming was all he knew Mm -hmm. what could he do and my mother didn't work most women didn't work outside the home and so how do you make a living how do you survive
1: a lot of stress
2: uh it was terrible because you could sometimes you raised a crop sometimes you couldn't Mm -hmm. and dad i can remember him saying this you had to pay the taxes and you had to pay the interest bankers like interest, you know. You bet. And, but the banker would let the principal go because the land was there, even though maybe it was blowing around a little bit. There's another, no better collateral than land. Sure. And so, uh, that that was the mantra, to hold on to that land so we'd have a place to live. Another... And
1: subject in your book uh, you deal with quite a bit. It has to do with abuse and mental health. Tell me a little bit about how that is woven into the story.
2: Well, uh, there is a case of uh, of uh, sexual abuse by a father and his daughter, incest, Mm-hmm and there is a case of a murder, and there is a dust storm, there is a flood. The, the book deals with some of the literary, and this this is where my literary background kicks in, the idea of man's inhumanity to man. That is part of the abuse cycle. And, of course, this still goes on. These, these problems are perennial to the human condition. They don't go away, right. it seems like. Every generation deals with these problems. And we had those in the 1930s too, just as much as we have them today. But uh, and another one, another idea in the book too is the movement from innocence to experience. In the chapter uh, Willie and Charlie, which deals with. Uh, the young boy, Jim, sadly growing up on this farm with his parents and the way he was an only child because during the 30s the birth rate was down. People simply could not afford to have children. They just didn't. There there were uh, a few families that had uh, more than one but one or two children, was that was quite common. And this boy grows up on the farm and he learns through the experiences of growing up about as i say children are always innocent when they come into the world they don't know anything about evil and then as they experience life they find out how imperfect the world is and this is what jim does he's a depression kid Mm -hmm. And it's just one of the things which all children go through. They develop... It's moving from innocence to experience.
1: Now, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: We live in a fallen world. Sure. We live in a world which is not uh, perfect. And human beings are not perfect. And we're always trying to... to, How do we adjust? How do we cope? How do we survive? That's what the book is about. It's about survival. And uh, the thing about in this book is these kids who grew up during this time. For instance, the Donovan children that Mert feeds. Mert is a protagonist, and I did a terrible thing, which is against one of the rules of literature. I killed off my protagonist in the middle of the novel. Uh That's one of those uh, rules, which you're not supposed to do, but which I did. (laughs) I, I don't know who writes all these rules.
1: That's it. Forget those. Just just break the rules and write your book, right?
2: <laughs> well, as I say, it has to be true to the human condition.
1: There you go. That's
2: how you have to evaluate a novel. Is it true to the human condition?
1: Why did you write this book?
2: Why? Mm-hmm. That is that's the $64,000 question. <laughs> it was about time. I said started it years ago, and then I got sidetracked with family and situation and went to college and finally picked it up and finally said, well, I better get this thing done. Or And then I d- could have done, I could have added more historical data if I'd wanted to do more research, but as I said, it's not really history as much as history as the interpretation of history.
1: Now, that being said, what is it that you want people to take away from the book when they finish reading it? What's the main idea you want them to come away with?
2: I would like to teach compassion for human suffering. There is so much suffering in this world today, and every morning when I get the news or the the newspaper, I call it my daily dose of bad.
1: (laughs) I can understand why
2: just something horrible all the time. Mm-hmm. And there is so much suffering in the world. And human beings can be so mean to one another. Just And you wonder, why? Why do we suffer? Why do people do the things they do? Why can't we have more compassion for for one another? Why can't we have more human kindness? Mm-hmm. Right. And by the end of the book, Ed, sadly, who's Mert's husband and the alcohol has destroyed him and he is uh, not even hardly human anymore because this is what happens to people. They become depraved.
1: Mm -hmm. So it's basically, it sounds like a cautionary tale.
2: Well, it's I hope it's not preachy as much as it is to reveal the truth. And we don't like truth because the truth is often unpleasant.
1: This is true. This, that's a it's, very good truth.
2: <laughs> it's, it's realism. And I think our illusions protect us from reality. Hmm. We like to see the world in, through, you know, the country western song, rose-colored glasses. Right. But uh, the truth is life can be pretty terrible at times. The, and so how do we survive and what do we do? What choices do we make?
1: The book is called Hoganville County. It's a novel. Uh, and again, where can we find the book?
2: Well, it's uh, iUniverse is the publisher, mm-hmm. and then you can order it through Amazon.
1: Very good. And do you have a, a website or any social media outlet or anything that you'd like to use to, that you'd like to promote while we're talking?
2: Well, no, okay. not as such.
1: Very good. But you can find the book on Amazon.com and, and uh, Barnes & Noble and so forth.
2: Yes. It's it's out there if anyone is interested
1: in it. Very good, Miss Price. It was great to visit with you. Uh, the book sounds like it's fascinating. Uh, it definitely was pro- probably would be a history lesson for the young people of this day that uh, have no idea what uh, you and uh, your generation had to uh, live through back in those days. But uh, also uh, teaches some great lessons as well.
2: When I look back on it, I I I don't know that it was as bad as it appears to be it was physically uncomfortable, but it was stable because mm-hmm. marriages were stable right homes were stable. I didn't even know there were no divorces in my family. Hmm. mom and dad were there, the grandparents were there, the uncles and aunts were there and and it was a stable in that way, and I think that's why what helped the uh that generation survive
1: outstanding. Again, the uh, name of the book is Hoganville County, a novel. It is written by Norma Campbell Price. Ms. Price, it was delightful to talk to you. Best of luck with the book.
2: Well, thank you very much.
1: Thank you See so you much. We, ap- we appreciate it, and we hope everybody will check out Hoganville County, a novel written by Norma Campbell Price. My name is Brian Houston. This is iUniverse Radio. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: For our
3: universe, this is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Journey of Perseverance, Accomplishments, Achievements of a Fighting Finance Sergeant Major. It's a memoir by our author John S. Medley, Ph.D. Dr. Medley, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you. Glad to be here.
3: Your book is uh, your story, and it's uh, 320 pages, which is a fairly ambitious uh, amount of uh, of publishing. Did you set out to, to write a book that was this intensive, this long?
4: No, not necessarily, but uh, once I got into it, uh, one thing led to another, and wound up with that many pages. I guess if I had to do it over again, I could uh, eliminate some uh, pages.
3: Well, I'm not saying it's not interesting, because it does cover your life from, from early on and especially in your military and other careers, what did you focus on and what inspired you to write this?
4: Well, during my military career, my fellow workers, subordinates, peers, and superiors took notice of my evolving ease to resolve undesirable situations. They rewarded me by seeking my assistance in, in facing complex problems and issues that And this created a strong urge within me to share my uh, knowledge and problem-solving talents. As I progressed in rank, I realized that there were leaders that, with uh, higher authority, but without accountability for a situation. They tended to resent my willingness to assist. Thus, I uh, realized that if I could uh, describe an undesirable situation in such a way as to enable their leadership, then I could be of greater assistance. Crucially, this approach was my directional knowledge, the knowledge that I acquired uh, from the, studying the policies, procedures, and processes, and systems, and mission of the Finance Corps. So as I perfected my approach, the urge to share it became manifest in significant accomplishments and ultimately the development of a methodology that I refer to as independent professionals uh, that are oriented and uh, on how to operate with minimum supervision and skimpy guidance in accomplishing their assigned tasks. Thus, I decided to pursue my education to the point that when I write about my journey, I could do so in clear terms, that is, express my experiences in easily understood practical applications rather than theoretical terms.
3: Uh, You ended up in infantry, and as a desk jockey, sort of speak, and one incident impacted you greatly. Can you share that for us, please?
4: Yes, uh, about... uh, Two months into the Finance Corps, after I completed uh, basic training, advanced training, infantry training, and airborne training, uh, I received a notice of the death of 21 trainee soldiers. Uh, And this is after I was inducted into the Finance Corps, a job I didn't really care for after all that infantry training. Uh, To be honest with you, I was designed at that point in time to kill the enemies of the United States of America. Hmm. But uh, when I got the notice of these 21 deaths, I um, suddenly realized that this was a, a valuable thing I was doing. I could uh, had a feeling that I could hear the voices of the dead soldiers saying, uh, prepare my final payments accurately. My dependents are depending on that. And so with tears in my eyes, I closed out the 21 records, and uh, I didn't realize that that impact stuck with me. But I did have a moment that this was, that I could dedicate myself to the finance corps. And uh, 30, almost 30 years later, I had a crash, a uh, plane crash for, for soldiers coming back from the Sinai, and it uh, killed 248 soldiers. Mm. I was asleep in bed, and I got a call from my V-team member, which is my deployment team, and they said, Sergeant Major, you need to turn on uh, the TV. I did, and they were broadcasting that crash, and uh, I immediately instructed my uh, NCO to uh, go pull the records of these soldiers, find out what dependents are in the area, and uh, get the checks ready for their death gratuity payments. Well, the finance officer, I was chatting with him about 9 o'clock in the morning and letting him know what we were doing. And, of course, we were trailblazing. He we did something that was never done before, and that's identify who died and identify their, uh, their dependents and have the payments ready. Well, at the point of his resistance, uh, one of the um, survivor's spouses came in with two children, And she, uh, the tears in her eyes, dropped to her knees and embraced the finance officer. And at that time, my NCO came in with a check and uh, gave her the check. And uh, at that point, I recognized the tear of achievement flow from the finance officer's face. And I myself had tears in my eyes. But I was proud of my NCOs, and I recalled the incident that took place some almost 30 years prior to that. So well, Dr.
3: Metley, I was yeah. dedicated totally to the, the Finance
4: Corps.
3: Most of your book deals with your military attachment. Uh, am I understanding the way your book is laid out?
4: Yes.
3: And as, yes. You were, as you were putting this together, and I know that most of it is dealing with leadership and accomplishments, which are, are great, did you have a specific audience in mind, someone that would benefit from reading your story of achievement?
4: Yes, I did. I, I was thinking about leaders, um, both in the business world and military leaders. And if I could uh, somehow target those leaders, I think it would be beneficial. Uh,
3: what message? Me yeah, what message do you want to want to convey to them? Besides the fact that you survived, you found a place of productivity. What do you want them to take away from this read?
4: Uh, well, I think that leaders in various professions, because the book contains leadership situations involving problem-solving, managing change, leading a pilot project, project, risk assessment, employee development in pursuit of complex tasks related to major initiatives, small group control, and methods to resolve opposing views to reach an expected outcome. And it also uh, provides a host of tried and tested methodologies, values, lessons learned, principles, philosophies, and idioms. Uh, For example, uh, the bandwagon approach. Uh, In the book, I espouse that uh, if you want to be a good uh, leader on the path to leadership, take a task that nobody else wants and uh, do the best you can. You can only succeed because it's upward. Nobody else wants it. So, uh, when you make success however there will be people uh, observing and they want in on the bandwagon so my suggestion is let them in and move on to uh, another task then there's the uh, closed door session your experience as you evolve and go into uh go into the path of leadership you gain a world of experience and knowledge And I call this directional knowledge. And what it is, if you're given uh, guidance or order by a superior and you disagree with that and you have the directional knowledge to uh, provide, to shape that decision, then you do so behind closed doors because you always value the leadership's position. You give them your directional knowledge. It's behind closed doors. What happens behind closed doors is nobody's business but your own. And uh, that way you can shape the outcome of the decision.
3: Now, as you have discussed leadership in your book, have you given some tips on how to condense the stages of change that someone's trying to achieve into a shorter time frame?
4: Oh, definitely. Uh, leadership change is, can be totally disrupted, no matter how good of a leader you are. But if you're conscious of the stages of change, then the rule is never break the stages of change. Take them through each stage. And uh, by doing so, you can build a program or schedule that's time limited based on the expected outcome of the change, and you can take uh, your employees through, for example, the denial stage. And uh, the book espouses ways you could do this. And the simple approach is to recognize that no news is bad news. So every day, going to change, you want to have some type of update uh, for your for your subordinates. Then you take them to the normal norming and storming process, and your objective is, along that those stages, you want to encourage your your uh, employees to do the best they can, and you need to say there is rewards in this and what those rewards are, what's the value to the company. Mm-hmm. Some of the rewards, the one crucial reward as you approach to the commitment stage of these employees is to introduce that your ability to manage change or cope with change when it's entered into your resume can allow for your promotion opportunity or moving on to uh, a greater opportunity.
3: Uh, who's a tiger in your book? What is a tiger? Explain and uh, share that information as well.
4: Yes, a tiger is a qualified individual. We had a group of tigers, and their mission was to go out to consolidate the finance functions uh, throughout the United States and uh, overseas. And we would bring them into locations uh, three operational locations within the United States. The Tigers were trained in uh, finance, accounting, and auditing. So uh, when we first deployed them, uh, the sites that they went to uh, sent them back with a a message, don't send Tigers to my site that needs training in functional areas. Hmm. Well, this gave me an opportunity to introduce the Tigers to Uh, become independent professionals, and uh, what it required was training them to understand or getting them to realize that they had a broad functional knowledge, so they had the ability to communicate within that functional area, and they had a network. They could network through other taggers or uh, back to the headquarters in order to gain someone with the uh, hands-on experience that could walk them through the task. So never go to a site and ask for somebody to train them. Simply ask who is performing that function, and if there's no one performing it, that alerts you to, to contact somebody with the expertise. And the way to do that is go to your team leader, and the team leader has access to a reservoir of expertise by contacting the headquarters. Fabulous. And that will get you through the task. Uh,
3: Dr. Medley, how long did it take to complete this book?
4: Uh, I would say about seven to nine months. Uh, you know, it took me years of uh, notes and ideas and, that I had stored, most, mostly men- mentally. Right. So when I started writing, it just uh, poured forth.
3: Beautiful. There's a lot of information in here. Would someone who's a high school student or a college student understand the concepts, or would this be too complex for them?
4: They should understand it because it's in plain language and it's simplified. It's just like uh, facing change. Uh, the steps are all spelled out. Uh, being a tiger uh, is, is is tools involved. Uh, that applies to anyone that wants to become a leader or a manager while they're on that path. And the tools are uh, there's about six or seven tools. But it begins with uh, the assessment. If you if you take a task, it's complicated and nobody else wants. And the first thing you do is make the assessment. The second thing, based on that assessment, you make a commitment, and that's time sensitive. And all you got to remember is that when you make a commitment to the boss, you don't have the right to change that commitment. You give him the boss always has the opportunity to give, to give you additional resources if you need if you need those resources. The third step is reassessment. Reassessment protects you and your commitment because if the complex was misstated the complexity of the task the was misstated, then you have a chance to adjust that as you go through. Then we have resourcing, get the resources you need, networking. I already talked about that. That's the uh, get, uh, getting in touch with the expertise that you need. And then the final element is reporting. The secret of reporting in recognition of the bandwagon pro- process, there's always somebody watching you, perform a difficult task, so you shoot out a message and and you shoot it to all the leaders that that are in the organization that you're aware of, and then as people pull in the report, you address, for example, a complex problem in the report, then somebody with that expertise will chime in wanting to get in on the bandwagon. And the report will allow you to do that, and it all spells success.
3: Fabulous. Now, your book, Journey of Perseverance Accomplishments, share how you would introduce this to someone in a couple of sentences.
4: I would say in a, uh, Perseverance and Accomplishments is a book about the journey of a fighting finance sergeant major who, based on his military experience, training, and studies, transitions with these values from a career in the military to successful accomplishments in the worlds of business, civil service, and academia. The book simplifies resolutions to complex issues
3: in practical terms. Dr. Medley, in addition to the hard work involved, was there some fun in putting this remembrance or this recollection into print?
4: Yes, I rather enjoyed uh, after figuring out how to list my acknowledgments. Uh, when I began listing the people I encountered over the years who had a bearing on my adaptation of an interactive leadership style and my many accomplishments, I faced a dilemma on who to list. I resolved after recalling the experience with my daughter as she approached as adolescence. I smiled inwardly as I remembered my response to her after her explanation of her views on a certain particular incident, issue. As you have learned from me, I said to her, I now learn from you. Mm -hmm. Consequently, the list grew to its present length, about
3: five pages. Incredible. I'm sure you don't want to recount what that story was with your daughter, because it might embarrass her, but (laughs) thank you for sharing that. Fabulous! Again, the title of the book is "Journey of Perseverance Accomplishments," and our author, John S. Medley, Doctor, PhD. Sir, where do we get copies of your book?
4: The book can be found on uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, and also on uh, the book sales of the iUniverse.com website.
3: Excellent. And is this your first and last major? publication or are you planning a sequel to this one
4: it's my second i did a my dissertation was uh, assured reciprocity and that was on the study of business leaders and military leaders Uh, so this is my second book and i'm currently thinking of assured reciprocity as another book
3: very good Well, I'd love to talk with you when that's completed. This is an important read for those who want to be successful in business and learn some great tips, some great tools in how to persevere and to accomplish. Thank you, Dr. Medley, for joining me today. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
5: Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us. For self-aid success stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central, on toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
3: Greetings for iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is Santa Claus, the Spirit of Christmas. And our author, joining me from Michigan, is Todd Graham. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you very much. Good to see. Uh, good to talk with you. I was going to say see you. I don't see you because I, I am uh, connecting by Skype but not by video Skype. Uh, I'm thinking of the winters in Michigan, and we're calling now in the springs and summers. How did you come up with this concept for a new story about Santa Claus?
6: Well, I've kind of been interested in writing for a long time. I'm a sixth grade school teacher, and and I teach a lot of writing uh, to my students. And I just personally always had an interest, uh, kind of a hobby uh, in writing. And, and I dabbled with a little bit of, of some screenplay writing. I bought some Sid Field books that sort of trained on some good story development for scripts and so on. And and just in the back of my mind at the same time, I, uh, just had this idea in my mind for, a kind of a reimagining, uh, a Christmas kind of story. Um, I was one as a youngster and even kind of as a young adult and adult, always appreciated and liked the Christmas specials, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, the Frosty the Snowman, all those different kinds of, uh, you know, yearly Christmas specials that we had on, uh, years ago. And, so well, an idea was just percolating in my mind there, I guess, uh, uh, about that. And in addition, I kind of wanted to do a little Christmas gift for my nieces and nephews, who are I actually use as the names of the main characters in the book, Nicholas, Shelby, Madison, and Rhett, as kind of a Christmas present for them. So I just spent a few years developing the story and uh, kind of writing that So.
3: You mentioned Shelby in your book. Is Shelby Santa's wife, or is that another character?
6: That's, that's, his, that's his big sister, his, big sister. his uh, pre- preteen sister, who torments young Nicholas at uh, eight years of age there as a, as a normal older sister would.
3: <laughs> Fabulous. Now, does this story uh, follow Santa Claus as a young child through adulthood, or how did you structure your story?
6: Well, the series of books I I'm doing will do that. This this book uh, alone is when he is eight years old, and he is being raised. He and his sister by the local town uh, toy maker uh, as orphans, and the events that kind of transpire put him on this big fantasy adventure tale. And he actually kind of starts off as kind of a brat, not a real great kid. Uh, lot of issues, and throughout the tale, of course, transforms himself and actually gets that spirit of Christmas by the end of the story.
3: That's an interesting approach. I don't think I've seen or heard of anything that's even close to that in in contemporary literature. What do you hope to accomplish with your book?
6: Well, I, of course, as I I wrote it, I I envision it almost as kind of like a Disney Pixar kind of film. I would love to see it. In, in a film version someday. I, I think I think the story is really just just uh, wonderful and right to be made into a film. There's also kind of another little angular connection that is kind of neat, too, and that is that I actually also wanted to weave in the actual meaning of Christmas, the birth of Christ, into the story in a meaningful way as well, not in a heavy-handed, you know, knock-you-over-your-head religious, you know, preaching-to-you kind of way, but just as an integral part of the story. So so I actually have the birth of Christ as kind of a payoff near the end of the story, which is instrumental in giving Nicholas the Spirit of Christmas, filling him with that, which is then in the later books going to be, you know, part of his main motivation in traveling around the world delivering presents every Christmas and so on. So so that's also another kind of special angle to it which is kind of neat.
3: I'm glad you you threw in something that's a little non cliche, and that definitely is. I I think that would make the the story interesting, especially to to young readers. What is your target audience?
6: Well, I read it to my sixth graders. Actually, I have a you know lots of or I have a class set. Uh, lots of my books here in my classroom, and so I actually read it with my sixth graders every year, and then they just just really love it. And that was probably, I would say, my target audience somewhere in the 8 to 13, kind of those middle grades uh, kind of age. But I really try to work in a lot of fun uh, contemporary references, humor, too. So I think a lot of adults could really get a lot of jokes and things. You know, like I said, almost as though it was uh, one of those, you know, Pixar movies where they work in a lot of fun stuff for adults. So it's, uh, it's got a lot of that as well. I also have numerous times within the book and story that there are songs placed in there, Christmas songs. So in a sense, you really, it's ready to be made to a movie, uh, a great movie musical that uh, would be filled with all the kind of Christmas songs everybody loves, and uh, just, just waiting for that.
3: Well, it's 152 pages, so it could be a great book for parents to read to younger children. And uh, as you mentioned, sixth grade to uh, maybe the 12, 12, 13-year-old young adults would enjoy it because of the length. It's not super long, and yet it has an intriguing tale, an intriguing idea. Are there contemporary uh, issues that you address in the book?
6: Well, a little bit of just um, sort of the whole idea of Christmas and, and the meaning of Christmas itself a little bit. Uh, but again, I didn't want to be heavy handed with that. I didn't want it, uh, like I, said, I didn't want to get preachy with the book or, or anything like that, but did want to, you know, have it appeal to a Christian audience as well. But, but I think, but again, not in any kind of judgmental way or anything like that. So I, I think I struck a really nice balance with uh, bringing that into the story and having it be meaningful to, you know, Nicholas and Frosty and Rudolph and all the, the great, you know, folktale kind of characters we're used to over the years, with the actual, uh, you know, meaning uh, of Christmas, and just kind of blended those really, really well. Uh, I, I wouldn't say necessarily hit any huge contemporary issues, uh, other than just appreciating Christmas for for its true meaning. But I did within the writing of this, and then also my second book that actually is, is in the process of being published right now. I already have the second one done, which is called. Santa Claus and the Christmas Song uh, did try to uh, work some things into the book that that my audience and my target audience some different ways that the characters interact and relate that maybe they could really relate to not 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 anything real major but but just some nice things that they could relate to.
3: Todd, as you began to write this, did you just sit down with inspiration and begin writing, uh, or did you have an outline that you worked from, and how long did it take to complete?
6: Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I totally planned the story first. Uh, as I said, I was kind of getting into a little bit of screenplay writing initially, and I uh, had studied these books by an author named Sid Field, who had a really great, great training in his books on, on structuring a story, his story paradigm, and I followed that process Uh, creating uh, the beginning, the ending, a couple of plot points, throwing in some other major structural components and plotted out my story completely following that process, which then actually made the writing of the book really not too bad at all. Although I actually, my first version of it, I actually wrote in verse first. So I actually wrote a poem version, uh, a rhyming version. I wouldn't say anywhere near kind of a, a, you know, Seuss- uh, ask you know kind of level or anything, mm. but but kind of a neat one. And um, then uh, tried to look at some traditional publishing uh, that way, uh, which I, I discovered was very challenging. So, but I was really sold on my story. So then I, I I changed it to prose and and wrote the whole thing in prose. And uh, then decided I'm going to get this thing published, you know, in, in whatever way I can. And then that's when I kind of stumbled upon iUniverse and have been really really pleased with their services, and the end result.
3: Is there a scene that you created that is going to really grab the reader as they're perusing your book?
6: Well, uh, we do a little thing here at school every once in a while where teachers rotate to other classrooms and then become guest readers to other classrooms that that are not our own homeroom classroom. And every year when we do that, I like to take my book along with me, and I read a particular scene which to me is my confrontation scene right smack dab in the middle of my book, which is essentially how Nicholas Claus is eight years of age, when he's eight years old, comes upon this little baby reindeer, the one destined to uh, become Rudolph. And uh, it's at the great reindeer games. And, and this baby reindeer actually is, is, is uh, owned uh, by this, this nasty troll and, and being treated miserably in a cage, and so on and so forth. And Nicholas confronts the troll and rescues the reindeer. And and in the midst of all that, um, how Rudolph actually winds up. The reason for him having a red nose becomes apparent. Although I don't want to give that all away right now. <laughs> but that's kind of a really neat uh, neat scene. And, and in fact, I do that throughout uh, by my first book and my second, and and then will also do in my subsequent books. Uh, I sort of explain all the different christmas traditions and you know how frosty came to be how, how everything you know wound up happening which uh it's kind of fun for me to uh, you know reimagine uh how all of this happened
3: and do you reimagine the existence of frosty in a different context than what we're used to
6: oh absolutely uh he's um let's see where should i start with this Nicholas uh, is taken from his home by my my villain, which is is the evil ice queen, and she has a legion or many legions of trolls as her, her henchmen or hench trolls, uh, whatever the case may be, and is after something that Nicholas actually has. Uh, and again, I'm trying to tell you a little bit without giving away too much of the plot. And he is taken from his home, from the toy maker uh, and such, And then his sister, along with a couple of other children in the village, uh, the Kringle children, which, again, I use the names of my nieces and nephews, Madison and Rhett, uh, they wind up having to go on a journey to uh, try to save him. And in doing so, uh, the snowman is brought to life, actually, by a guardian angel who has been given the ability to use some different miracles to uh, give these uh, kids some assistance. And that's one of the things that is done is this snowman is brought to life to to assist uh, Nicholas's sister and these other children in the town in their attempt to uh, save him.
3: I like that. I like that. How would you introduce this book in a couple of sentences?
6: I would really kind of say that, uh, again, it's a reimagining of Santa Claus and the motivation behind Santa in his early years, and then the journey that leads him to be, the, of course, the holiday icon we know today, and we'll explain from when he's eight years old into his young adult years how everything revolving around Christmas has come to be.
3: And is there an underlying message in addition to that that comes through?
6: Oh, absolutely, and that is it all comes back to the birth of Jesus Christ as the, the meaning of Christmas, and that that is the, the one thing that, that people should keep in mind and remember about this holiday.
3: This is a unique approach. There must have been some challenges in getting this to print. Uh, were there any that were almost uh, insurmountable, or was it just a lot of fun?
6: I don't know that anywhere insurmountable, of course, you go through iUniversal, you know, and it's a self publishing kind of process, so obviously you need to pay you know money for different services and you know just just paying for the services you know I mean monetarily there's a little challenge there, but the actual writing of it and such um i I found it just to be a very enjoyable process. I really appreciated all the Services that iUniverse has offered. I love the developmental edit, where an editor goes through my book page by page and makes suggestions and, and comments and gives me feedback on my writing. I'll, uh, that's the fact that's the stage where my second book is at right now, which is actually about double the length of the first one. So so I learned a lot through the writing of the first book and tried to apply a lot of what I learned in the second one, and it's bigger and better and and all kinds of things going on in the second book and looking forward to getting that published uh, by this Christmas. And uh, no, I, I wouldn't say any major challenges. I just also am really happy with the fact that I chose this Christmas route because of the Christmas story. This is, you know, Christmas is going to roll around every year. So, you know, as I write some more of my books every year, I'll have another opportunity to, to market the stories, uh, get it out there um, to, again, maybe... Maybe one day they they can be known a lot more than they are right now.
3: Fabulous. A novel and interesting approach. Santa Claus, the Spirit of Christmas. Our author, Todd Graham. Todd, where can my listeners get copies of your books?
6: It is all over the web, all over the Internet. Uh, Amazon.com, com. .com. If you were just to type in Santa Claus, the Spirit of Christmas with my name, Todd Graham, the author, uh, it'll spring up all over the place.
3: Excellent. And the spelling for Todd Graham is T-O-D-D-G-R-A-H-A-M. Thank you, Todd, for joining me today.
6: Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate that very much.
3: Well, I look forward to talking with you when the other novels are rolled out.
6: Thank you very much. I'd be happy to do so.
3: For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.